0: Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. A few months ago, Democrats bragged that Americans were so supportive of President Biden's unprecedented sanctions on Russia, turning the ruble into rubble, they couldn't wait to pay higher gas prices. Polls even showed that Americans were willing to pay more at the pump if it meant helping Ukraine against Russia. But now that prices are higher with no end in sight, Americans hate it. And Democrats and Republicans are pretending the sanctions they enacted have nothing to do with it. If you're a Democrat, it's Putin's inflation. It's Putin's gas hike. Pay no attention to the war effort. If you're a Republican, it's Biden's inflation. He ruined a fantastic economy left to him by Trump. And the only way to make it better is to make America great again, again. Meanwhile, mainstream economists are warning of a possible recession and saying the only way to get inflation down is to raise interest rates and unemployment. And that's exactly the Fed's plan. So you sanction one of the world's largest oil and wheat producers after a devastating pandemic, yet somehow corporations still manage to rake in record profits, and then you wanna sacrifice the working class so the economy doesn't totally crash? Oh, and by the way, it might still crash. What's really going on here? Who's lying? Is anyone telling the truth about why everyone feels like they're on a hamster wheel that could break at any moment? To discuss this and more, I'm joined by my breakthrough news colleague, Eugene Perrier, journalist and host of The Punch Out. Eugene, welcome back to the show.
1: Ronnie, thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, it's so good to have you back on. I'm glad that we get to do this. Uh, and I think it's a very important topic right now. So I guess to open, you know, you've noted on your program the punch out that there's, of course, plenty of wealth in America. Mm-hmm. Billionaires, in fact, have increased their wealth something like 70 percent since the pandemic. They added two point mm-hmm. one trillion dollars to their wealth since then. Yet inflation is out of control. I believe we just learned it's up nine point one percent from June of last year, which is the highest it's been in a very long time. Meanwhile, wages are only up 5.2%. So clearly, wages are not keeping up with inflation. And then we're being warned about this potential recession. Now, before we get into the foreign policy angle on this, can you explain what's really behind inflation? Because it didn't just start this year. You know, you've repeatedly pointed out that corporate profits, which often gets ignored, have been a big part of this. So why don't you lay out for us what's actually behind inflation?
1: Yes. No. Absolutely. And I, I think that you're very right. I mean, it's worth noting. Basically, if you look year on year, the average person has had a four percent wage cut between June of 2021 and June of 2022, which gives you a sense of how serious it is. But what's really going on with inflation, right? And there's so many different theories and so many different things that are are behind it. And you know, a lot of them have sort of elements of truth to them. And the one element of truth that I think a lot of people is talking about are talking about is the issue of you know, quote unquote, supply chains and other things that have created shortages. But to take one step back, I think it's important to sort of think about sort of inflation as we know it, right? Because inflation, there's sort of a natural inflation that happens over time. And I won't get into that now, but like, you know, when you think in 1933 or whatever, uh, milk cost a nickel or something, and now it's whatever it is. So there's a certain amount of natural inflation, but you know, inflation becomes a political topic when there are these big, huge price spikes. And when we think about inflation, I think what we really have to think about is it's essentially the punishment that capitalism doles out to the economy when things are going well. So it's kind of a paradoxical thing because obviously inflation is very bad and everyone is like, oh my God, inflation, terrible crisis. And like I said, about a 4% wage cut. So it's a huge impact on working class people. But really inflation is happening because things are going well, which in and of itself speaks to the perverse nature of capitalism as a system. But inflation essentially happens when the economy is more or less going gangbusters. So the possibility of of raising prices is a lot easier, right? Because you can raise prices, Somewhat, and you don't have to be as worried about losing market share or anything like that because demand overall is high. Things are going well. People are employed. They're getting paid. And so you can have some level of expectation that if you raise prices, you being the company, that you are going to be able to get away with it, in other words, as opposed to when the economy is bad. So, you know, people are spending less money. You know, they're being tighter with their dollar. And so you don't necessarily want to raise prices because you might lose market share to one of your competitors. So inflation starts to happen. For a range of reasons when the economy is going well. But that initial sort of piece is important because it's the economy going well uh, that really creates the basis by which inflation can actually happen. So there are a range of things that can cause it. And when we look at inflationary crises throughout history, there are many things. So, you know, and I'll get to this, you know, you have the COVID induced realities that we've seen since 2020. That's a real thing. So it can be real things like that uh, that cause inflation can also be essentially fake things, right? Like a group of companies have monopoly power over a certain sector and they just decide because things are going well, we're just gonna jack up the prices on something and it's gonna be what it's gonna be. So there's also just general feelings like, okay, the economy is kind of going well, it's going better. So we can get away with the fewer, of uh, you know, higher prices and so on and so forth. So ultimately what happens is the expectations of the economy going very well can create all sorts of things that cause inflation outside of, you know, supply chain shocks and things like that or real things can happen like supply chain shock, sh- like supply chain shocks that do actually affect the ability to say get goods to market and create the scope by which you can increase prices. But I'm going to come back to that as well because there's an element of that just because there's less of something doesn't necessarily mean that prices should go up. But anyway, I just wanted to sort of lay some of the basis there for sort of these inflationary crises and how they happen and the perversity of the system, that it's essentially punishment for things going well. And you see inflationary crises happen really as the economy is on an, an upturn. So when we look yeah. at our current, well, mo- yeah, go ahead.
0: No, 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 no. I was just agreeing with you. <laughs>
1: Please. Okay. So when yeah, we look at ahead. our current moment, I do think it's more than fair to point to what took place with COVID-19 as being the initial driver of inflation happening in the country and in many ways around the world. Because you have this basically total shutdown of the economy right away in the United States, and you have a big shift in the goods and services that people are buying, right? So instead of going to a gym, people might be buying a Peloton. So this shift from, you know, going out and doing many things to buying many things and doing them at home and shifting, you know, shifting around sort of how you do the various things that you want to do every day, then shifts the types of goods that are having. So, okay, yes, now there's many more things that people want to have shipped to their home. So that speaks to the production of those things, which also in and of itself, right, is being affected by COVID-19 because factories aren't able to open and run full out because workers are getting sick. And, you know, there's also COVID-19 protections. Then you have the issue of shipping capacity. You have the issue of port capacity, which, you know, prior to 2020 and prior to COVID was already an issue in the United States. And so all of these things can start to create supply chain bottlenecks that exist, which then ultimately makes it a lot e- easier for companies to say, well, look, everybody wants a Peloton, but there are fewer Pelotons. It's harder to make them. It's harder to get them here. And thus, we're going to raise the prices. And that's, you know, another interesting thing about capitalism, right? Because in socialism, they uh, the critique in capitalism is always, well, they're going to ration everything under socialism and there's ration cards and there's lines. Well, in capitalism. You know, your paycheck is your ration card. So ultimately, Mm -hmm. when there's a limited amount of goods, what determines whether or not you're one of the people who can get them is can you actually afford it? So essentially, corporations start to put in place a form of paycheck-based rationing in order to address the fact that there is a limited ability to get these goods to market in order to find a way, uh, in order to, you know, put them on the shelves and for people to buy them. So that causes and caused an initial inflation spike price on a range of different goods and many other pieces like that that is now filtered down into other parts of the economy which are less related to covid-19 but i do think it's fair to say that when we look at the initial spike in prices to point to some of these pieces with covid-19 but i say all that to say that when you look at the sort of broader reality of the of the nature of inflation right now and we've seen this from the Economic Policy Institute has put together a report that has shown this very clearly. What you start to see is the vast majority of of the addition to price increases has not actually been supply chain issues. It also hasn't been wages, which is about 8% addition, supply chain issues in the mid 30%. But profits has added about 54% of the cost of inflation. So the easiest way to think about that since it's on a scale of 100 is for every dollar of inflation about 54% is going to profits, 30 some odd percent is going to increased costs around supply chain issues and about 8 cents is going to wages. So you can see right there that corporate profits are the biggest driver of inflation in this inflation spice, uh, price hike that we've seen over the past couple of years and certainly that we're seeing right now. And that's because companies know that most people don't know anything at all about how much anything costs. So when you have like sort of real life things that are happening, like supply chain issues and other things like that, the fact that workers, when they're coming back into the workforce are more competitive and seeking better working conditions in the post COVID era. And he's like, okay, supply chains and people are having rising wages and so on and so forth. Then they know that they have a lot of scope to increase prices because people aren't really going to know is the increased price based on something real or, you know, said to be real like, you know, a supply chain issue, or they're paying workers more or whatever? Or is it really just that these companies are trying to get ahead of the game? And you can see it because in their earning statements, many of these companies, you know, Hershey's, uh, Nike, many others have actually said straight up that they're not that worried about the impact of inflation on profits, because they've jacked up the prices so high in order to make sure that their profit margins don't decline as their prices go up. So what we're seeing right now basically is, and some people call it corporate greed, but I think the better way to say it is capitalism is operating the way capitalism is supposed to operate, and that is it's trying to increase profits at all costs, no matter what the results are for the average working class person, and they're using the various crises that are happening right now to make sure that they can increase prices to such a level that they're able to maintain the profits that they want, not the profits they need. I mean, if it's 54 cents out of every dollar and only 34 cents. Sense is going to supply chain. Why are they increasing prices as much as they are? It's because they want to make the maximum amount of profits, not just a profit. And so a huge amount of the inflation spiking we're seeing is coming from the profiteering of capitalist corporations using crises of various types, real and imagined, in order to make sure that they're going to be able to still have their private jets pay off their big shareholders and pop champagne at the end of the year.
0: Right. I mean, well said. And you know, then of course, exacerbating all of that is the sanctions on Russia. And I want to play—I um, want to play a clip here uh, because I think it's really emblematic of um, of really like what the of what our political class is thinking because they knew this was going to happen. Like this wasn't by accident. Um, and let me explain what I mean by that. I'm just getting this clip set to go. But before I do play this clip. Um, it's important to remember, you know, like we're told by our leaders that it's really Putin's inflation. This is Putin's gas hike. None none of what you just explained about corporate profiteering being a major part of this. But it's also an attempt, I think, to displace blame from Western sanctions onto Russia as we continue on with this war over Ukraine. And just to remind everyone what these elites sounded like back in March, here is Former Clinton Treasury Secretary Larry Summers on Fareed Zakaria, this is back in March. This is several months ago. This is a few weeks after the war in Ukraine began and the sanctions were placed on Russia, so
1: here we go. What about the cost uh, to the global economy and the American economy? President Biden said in his uh, uh, State of the Union that his number one priority was now combating inflation. You've been perhaps more prescient about that inflation than, than anyone. Um, what 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 is it going to look like um, if this if things continue as they are? Will there be more inflation, and is the Biden administration uh, adopting the right strategy to deal with that inflation? Inflation is a serious problem. This will make it worse, but preserving world order is much more fundamental and much more important than an extra percentage point or an extra 3 percentage point on the CPI uh over some interval. So let's have our priorities straight. Historians 50 years from now might remember the events of this week in Ukraine. They will not remember the inflation statistics over the next uh 6 months. I'm an economist, but I'm a political economist, and I recognize what's most fundamentally important. Larry Summers, good to have
0: And so I think that's really important to hear, right? Because these people, you know, our, our leaders knew this was going to happen. And now that that inflation that Larry Summers said was going to make things, now that, now that the sanctions that Larry Summers said was going to make things worse, now that the inflation has come to pass, Larry Summers himself is actually recommending that the only way to get inflation under control is to actually raise unemployment up to as high as 10%. And we can talk about that so-called solution in a bit. But first, Eugene, what is the role of sanctions on Russia in driving up inflation? And why is it so important that we do not divorce foreign policy from discussions about the domestic US economy?
1: Well, you know, I think it's a very important, you know, question. I mean, I think obviously the, you know, war that's going on in Ukraine has played a major role because it's created the, at least the perception that there is a shortage or a potential shortage in the amount of oil and gas that's available and the possibility that there, you know, so it's again, going back to what I said, the idea that there's some sort of shock in the supply and that demand for oil and gas is somehow outstripping the supply that exists. Now, whether or not that's the case, I think is a is, is a totally separate issue and whether or not that should actually, you know, actually cause the prices at the pump to rise is, again, a whole other issue. And I think, again, you can see the massive oil companies are taking advantage of this. I mean, you look at Chevron, you look at Exxon Mobil. I mean, they're actually increasing their dividends by tens of bil- by billions and billions of dollars, uh, excuse me, their share buybacks by billions and billions of dollars this year. So they're actually making record profits off of the high gas prices. And then they're giving that money back to their super rich investors by buying out their stock and the people that then still hold their stock you know, there's fewer people holding it. So each individual stock is then worth more. So it's a huge giveaway. And so what you see happening right away is that ultimately You know, many of these companies actually could, if they wanted to, eat the cost of increased prices that they may or may not be paying in different ways, and it's complicated because of the way the oil and gas industry has actually worked. But they could certainly, you know, eat the cost of this if they wanted to and not drastically increase prices. But they too were profiteering and taking advantage of the situation. But you know, listen, when you look at the oil and gas market, there is essentially a quote-unquote cartel that exists, right? And that is OPEC, and OPEC in and out is directly limits the amount of oil Uh, that is produced. And there's not a gas cartel in the same way, but there are sort of negotiations that operate and sort of people looking at each other to figure out how to work this in order to make sure that the price is going to be a certain, that that the price is going to be at a certain level so that those countries are going to be able to bring in a certain amount of income. Now, not every country that produces oil and gas is a part of OPEC. And, you know, the United States in and of itself, uh, the oil and gas industry here is kind of at war with OPEC in many ways. And the rise of fracking was designed in many ways for U.S. oil and gas majors to then be able to try to steal a march on some of the largest oil and gas producing countries but you're already in a market that is very tight that's basically essentially what it is so what the war has done is saying that you have an already tight market and then now you have one of the largest players that is under major sanctions from the west and there's both the actual impact of sanctions and the potential impact of sanctions that plays into this right like you know whether or not you know there's going to be a lessening of gas or oil produced from russia if for instance ships don't want to carry Russian oil and gas because they can't get insurance because insurance companies don't want to run a file of sanctions, or the shipping companies don't want to run a file of sanctions, or banks that are addressing different transactions that need to be cleared for the contracts to work don't want to run a file of sanctions. Mm -hmm. And all those things potentially have a major impact on the supply and an already tight market, and one that's also governed very much by long-term contracts. There's something called a spot market in oil and gas, where you can sort of buy oil and gas just like right there. But a lot of oil and gas things are based on longer-term contracts so it's not necessarily that easy to say oh hey i have a lot of oil and gas so i'm just going to shift it to europe as opposed to where i was selling it before sometimes you can't just do that and so you have an already very tight market that's that's very much threatened by the impact of sanctions which has a secondary impact because iran and venezuela which are also big producers of oil and gas are also sanctioned which means that you then have this kind of knock-on effect here where anyone who's looking at you know what's happening with the with the market is going to see that there's a lot of possibilities through the war and through the changes that are happening and through the sanctions to actually even limit more and more the availability of oil and gas. And of course, you know, maybe in the summertime, some people say it's less of an issue because you have less heating issues, but, you know, really oil and natural gas, especially powers a lot of the electricity period around the world. And so as the demand for electricity will continue to grow, especially as the COVID restrictions are being lifted around the world, which means people are going out more, more businesses are opening and so on and so forth. uh, Certainly you have the possibility of supply by being restricted in some sort of way, the potential of it being restricted. And so prices are going to go up uh, on the cost of these basic commodities because they can essentially. I mean, it gets to a whole other issue, which is like if there's a shortage, why do prices go up for you and I? Um, and I think that's the issue that a lot of people have raised is why is Biden not doing something that, you know, even someone as right wing as Richard Dixon would do, which is put in price controls. But you know, ultimately, in an unfettered capitalist free market, that's how it works. If there's a, even a potential uh, restriction of supply when demand that is below what the demand is prices are going to go up because again there's going to be a rationing. Because if you have a price cap, that's also a form of rationing, right? It's a form of rationing that then sort of equally distributes what everyone can get. But again, in capitalism, your paycheck is your ration card. So the way the market works under capitalism is it says, okay, there either is or may potentially be a lessened supply of this thing. So what we're going to do is we're going to ration out demand based on who can pay by raising prices. So by raising prices and increasing their profits, which oil and gas companies are seeing, that's ultimately a way for them to distribute what potentially could be a a lesser uh, uh, supply based on what the demand may be. So there's a lot of kind of complicated issues, but ultimately it really comes down to the sanctions and it comes down to the fear that so many different elements up and down the chain of production and distribution have around what those sanctions are going to do and the possibility for what that could create in terms of, if not an actual shortage of supply essentially a a enforced shortage because you can't get all the supplies to the market because of the nature of sanctions
0: and then there's of course the domestic response to this which has been you know the fed is responding by raising interest rates to lower inflation they've increased interest rates i think zero like about a half a percentage point which is the largest rate hike since 1994. And then, of course, like I mentioned earlier, the head of the Federal Reserve has also said that the way to control inflation is to drive down wages and increase unemployment, which, of course, is what Larry Summers was suggesting we do to as high as 10 percent. So why is the mainstream prescription for controlling inflation to raise unemployment? And in other words, like let me put it this way. Why are workers earning too much money? Why is that such a big problem for capitalism? And why does capitalism need unemployment or this reserve army of labor, why does that need to increase in order to control something like inflation?
1: Yeah. Well, there are a couple of questions that are nested in there. I mean, in the first, and I think the point that needs to be made, especially about Larry Summers, who we showed on the show, is he's just wrong. Uh, you know, Larry Summers was making his explication of how basically he was saying that the covid relief in and of itself and this is also by the way even though larry summers is a notable democrat this is also the economic narrative of the republican party right now that the covid relief that was put in place by biden interesting how they never mentioned trump uh (laughs) but nevertheless that that covid relief basically ruined the economy because people had way too much money to spend and so again this goes back to the point i made in the beginning right like there's a very paradoxical aspect of inflation because we think of inflation from the point of view of what we can't get because your dollar doesn't travel as far but really inflation has caused basically by there being too much money in the system, which is why, and I'll come back to this, sort of quote unquote, draining liquidity is, uh, which is the same thing as raising interest rates. So reducing the amount of money available is seen as the biggest kind of blunt force instrument to address, to address inflation so the thought process there is that because there was you know all this unemployment money there was all this money being put into the child tax credit because people were getting help with their rent all these various covid relief measures the, the checks that people were getting that essentially they had too much money in their pocket and that the ability to have demand was far outstripping all supply. People could buy more than the economy could possibly produce. That's what they were saying. The reality is, is that is not true. And there's a kind of complicated, I won't get into it, way of measuring that really, where you measure what is the actual rise in GDP based on the potential rise in GDP. And that is supposed to be like the gap between what the economy like is the economy running full out so if the actual rise is below the potential rise then demand is not out of whack with supply but if the actual if the actual rise is above the potential rise, then the demand is actually outstripping what the economy can produce, and thus it's causing inflation. Well, these are numbers that actually can be measured. And we can, in fact, see that the actual rise in GDP is below the potential rise in GDP. So there is, in fact, no actual crisis, as Larry Summers is saying, and as the Republicans are saying, that has created some sort of situation where people are doing so well that they're demanding more than what the economy can produce. It's just not happening. So that's just part one. And I think that's very important about that. But it does speak to a deeper question that you're raising here about why is capitalism proposing this? So to go back to the issue of raising interest rates. So I said that raising interest rates is like a blunt force weapon, essentially, to address inflation. And I think that's the best way to think about it. It's a blunt instrument. And the concept is the same. If inflation is the punishment for the economy doing well, well, you make the economy do poorly and inflation's going to go down because you have a situation, you have this basic situation. The economy in and of itself is a a very sort of credit based economy. I mean, that's why you have these things like the repo loan market and these huge multi trillion dollar loan markets. That's why the stock market and the issue of, you know, how deep the 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 capital markets are is something that you hear about when you read the financial press because really all the biggest corporations are buying, trelling, sh- uh, buying, selling, trading, loaning, all these different sort of things to sort of grease the wheels of the economy and of course there's also personal credit and things like that that exist so. The reality is, is that you need more money than the amount of economic transactions essentially for the economy to grow because you need to be able to lubricate the potential for greater growth down the line, right? And so you have a situation when the economy is doing well, there can be, and this is sort of what Summers and others are speaking to, you know, a lot of quote unquote money in the economy, uh, perhaps, you know, because there's, there's it's the froth essentially on the top of the success. So. When you have a situation like that, people are going to take more chances. You know, if you if you're a company and you expect, well, listen, hey, credit is relatively cheap. The economy is doing relatively well. I'm going to take a chance and I'm going to try to expand my business because, hey, unemployment's also low. People are working and a bank might say, like, all right, cool. Like, this is a risk. It's a chance. But we're going to loan you the money. Now, the opposite is true when the economy starts to go down. When the economy starts to go down, if I'm a bank and I'm looking at someone to lend money to in a corporation, I'm going to be less likely to take a chance on somebody if they can't really assure me that this is going to work. If I'm a consumer, I'm going to be looking around and saying, well, listen, I can only buy but so much and I might lose my job or my wages are going to get cut or my hours are going to get cut because the economy isn't doing as well. And also this works on an economy wide basis, but we'll come back to that with the unemployment, the reserve army of the unemployed that you mentioned. Um, And so you're going to say, listen, I'm going to go for the cheapest possible thing because I can't necessarily assume my wages are going to go up or my hours are not going to be cut if it hasn't happened already, which means there's a lot less scope for corporations to raise prices. Because if I'm Target and I say, well, look, I'm gonna go up $1 and Walmart's like, cool, I'm not gonna go up at all. Everyone's gonna go, who is at Target is gonna go to Walmart. Now, if the issue is the economy is going well and Target goes up $1, Walmart goes up 35 cents, you might say, well, okay, but I like, you know, the target brand or whatever. This is like a nicer looking shirt that I can buy off the rack or whatever it You're going to let some other psychological concern other than just the cost impact what you're actually doing. So up and down the economy, you can see when things are going well, you know, there's more risk being taken. People are more willing to sort of build in the idea of increased cost as long as, you know, they feel it's not going to massively hurt them if it's going to, you know, make them happier in some way, shape or form and that the opposite is true when the economy is going down. So what you do is you raise interest rates, which means you make the price of money higher, basically, of borrowing money, which means that a lot of corporations are going to do very poorly because they took the bet uh, when things were going well, and they're not going well, which means they can't pay, which means they're going to go down and they're not going to be able to refinance. And then you're also going to have a situation whereby – And so that ultimately means the economy is going to contract and the economy is going to get smaller because you're not going to have the same ability to continue to expand, 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 because you're not going to have the same ability to to have banks lend out cash to corporations or whatever. And the economy doesn't expand. It starts to contract. Companies start to lay people off. People don't have jobs. They start to cut hours. Wages are also going to go down because when the economy is not growing, workers don't have the same bargaining power against their boss because there's other people who have just been laid off who will come in and take a uh, a lower uh, uh, salary or whatever to do the same job which also means then that it puts downward pressure on the actual uh, 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 you know cost of wages to corporations so all these things sort of come together in a way to bring down inflation for sure there's no doubt that when you forcibly contract the economy for the reasons I already listed, the inflation is going to go down. But on top of that, you're also going to get higher unemployment, further cut hours, lower wages, and things that are really going to hurt people, which is why I say it's a blunt force instrument. It's like the same idea that you use chemotherapy to go after cancer. It absolutely attacks cancer, but it causes a lot of other problems for the body. Now, of course, we don't have any other better solution. When it comes to cancer as of right now hopefully we will soon but when it comes to the economy there are many other solutions that exist but almost all of the other solutions that you could potentially put in place put the onus on capital as opposed to labor. When you can track the economy, the onus is on cap is on labor, not capital. And that might seem right. somewhat strange to people because it says, well, aren't businesses closing and things like that? Three businesses close, the one business out of the four that's left then buys up the other three and gains market share and becomes an even bigger business. So they gain from that. So ultimately, capitalism, capitalists as a class are actually not going to be ba- uh, carry the main burden of contracting the economy. It's going to be the workers who are on the losing end. And so to just bring that all the way around home, what you mentioned about the reserve army of labor, which is a longtime Marxist concept, is that ultimately you have to have a certain amount of unemployment for capitalism to work. And in fact, when you look at statistics, full employment in the United States is still like two, three percent unemployment so even full employment means there's a lot of people who are unemployed and it's pretty basic because if you have full employment that means that workers have all of the leverage really vis-a-vis bosses because you don't have anyone who you can fire and bring in someone else the entire leverage that bosses have to increase their share of the proceeds of the business over workers is based on the fact that people everybody knows that they can get rid of you at any time and bring somebody else in there. And in individual jobs, it's different things. That's why, you know, skilled labor, quote unquote, although all labor requires some skill, you know, is harder to replace, which means you have more bargaining power, even in down times. But the basic reality remains the same, is that you have to have for capitalist competition to be able to work, for capitalists to be able to get the most of the product that they, uh, the majority of the product that is produced in their business, they have to have the ability to make labor Uh, weaker than them. And that ultimately is is the overall goal of having some level of unemployment. And the greater the level of unemployment, the greater the leverage for capitalists and the more they're able to do it. If everyone had a job, it would be a lot harder for capitalists to say, well, we're gonna take the vast majority of the proceeds even though we're just a tiny amount of people. I mean, that's a definition that a lot of people use of capitalism, right? Socialized production and private appropriation. It takes the people who work there to make everything, but a tiny number of people get the vast majority of the proceeds. And so without that leverage, it's very difficult for them to be able to do so. And so that's what this is really about when we look at the raising of interest rates by the Federal Reserve, which is essentially just an arm of Wall Street, is that inflation is rising. And rather than address it with things that we could get to, like a windfall profit tax, which is relevant because of the profit issue, uh, or putting in uh, caps on the price of critical goods, those things that would actually deal with inflation but put the onus on capitalists, they don't want to do that. Because the government is controlled by capitalists, and so ultimately, what they're doing is looking for a solution to inflation that puts the onus on working class people, as opposed to the rich people who run the Federal Reserve, Congress, and the White House.
0: Yeah, and it's just also interesting the way that the, of course, capitalist owned media frames everything. Because like they act like, oh, like I mean, just just in May, there was this New York Times article. The headline was. For tens of millions of Americans, the good times are right now. And it just went on to explain how amazing the economy is doing. When, as you have talked about a lot on the punch out, that actually hasn't been the case for a lot of Americans, not to mention people around the world, but especially for a lot of Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck, as we know, one medical emergency away from being bankrupt. And, you know, that's a, that's a different you know, story to get into right now. But I want to ask you another pretty broad question here because we're hearing warnings of a recession. Um, And that all of this is of course necessary, not just to prevent inflation, but to actually prevent a recession. Can you explain to our audience what is a recession and are recessions a built-in feature of capitalism?
1: Well, yes, I think it's an important question. I mean, a recession, a technical term is is basically just a number of quarters of negative growth, of consecutive quarters of negative growth. Uh, I think it's two consecutive quarters of negative growth, if, if I have that exactly right. Um, and recessions and depressions, it's sort of like the same thing. Like if it's a longer you know, number of consecutive quarters where there's negative growth, then you're in a depression as opposed to a recession. But, you know, those two things are basically, uh, are in fact intrinsic to capitalism. I mean, the idea that the sort of economy goes up and down, that fact in and of itself is intrinsic to capitalism. And that is something that can't be wiped away. And all you really have to do is just look at the history of capitalism. And the history of capitalism is a history of booms and busts. You can't get away from it, whether you look at it at a chart, whether you read it in a book, the history of capitalism is that sometimes the economy is going up, Sometimes the economy is going down and that there's always big, you know, the panic of this year, the depression of that year. I mean, these are huge markers, really. I mean, the panic of 1873, the recession of the 19, I mean, the depression of the 1930s. I mean, oftentimes our history is actually marked by the nature of these downturns and upturns in the the, the fortunes of the capitalist economy. So beyond any sort of just basic theorization of that fact, I think we can look at the imperial, the, the empirical evidence in and of itself proves unequivocally that this is in fact a feature of capitalism and there are reasons for that reasons why it happens and reason why it why it happens seems to be happening more frequently the sort of older capitalism seems to get. And the basic sort of underlying reality of why these booms and busts are happening is something that's called a crisis of overproduction in Marxist economic terminology. And that the basic fact is, is that capitalism's ability to produce can far outstrip the ability to sell the goods that are out there. And that really the impetus for capitalism is profit, right? Why would you ever invest in any business or want to run any business other than profit? I think almost everybody knows that about business. And that sort of insatiable drive for profit is the thing that drives everything really about capitalism. And the nature of competition is what really drives that. Because even if You know, let's just say, for instance, to go back to that Target Walmart example, if there's a possibility for you to make more profit and you decide not to for whatever reason, and your, you know, competitor does decide to do that, uh, then ultimately you're going to lose market share and your company's going to lose out. So there's no room for morality. There's no room for human consideration in capitalism at all. And so ultimately, what happens is the different companies competing against each other for the maximum amount of profit that they can make means that they're gonna do all sorts of things, including. And one of the main things is try to find a way to work people longer hours, harder and introduce more technology to be able to make more in that time period, right? To find a way to do more with less, essentially, to bring in machines to do what humans could do a lot faster. And the humans that work the machines, you make them work longer and you make them work harder, which is an interesting thing because it is also, it is true that. Machines do tend to replace humans over time in capitalism. But one thing that people very rarely connect with that is that then the people who are left tend to be worked even harder and even longer, which also increases the amount of profits that these companies are making. But it means that the companies are rushing to produce more for cheaper in order to gain uh, an advantage over their Competitors, Which means that they can actually produce way more than the people who exist, the people in companies who buy the goods exist, can actually buy. And so in a situation like that, you have an economy that can't continue to really con- can't, can't move forward, because it doesn't actually have any sort of dynamism. Now there's actually more than what you need. And so ultimately, things got to fall down production has to drop. The amount of stock that exists has to come back into whack with what the economy can actually produce in a way that exists. And these crises of overproduction that do happen, and you can see them again in the literature, they tend to happen relatively normally. You know, I mean, there's different cycles and different years, like length cycles. I won't get into all of that. But there's a sort of a a logic to it that they happen over time, they happen inevitably, and that the way sort of capitalist growth works is it spools up, It gets to a peak. And because of these crises of overproduction, then it drops down to a valley. And then what happens is, is, as we said before, the economy goes down, businesses close, stock is wiped out. You know, excess capital is no longer used. There's a consolidation of capital with the companies who are left. And then things sort of start back again. So essentially a depression and to some degree a recession, although it's not exactly the same thing. But an economic crisis, if you will, is almost like a way that capitalism is kickstarting itself, that it's a way of resolving the problems that it's created by its own success. So again, going back to the point I made in the beginning, this is one of the perverse elements of capitalism is that it's owned in its own success. Are the, are the seeds of its own demise. And the only way to resolve the challenges that its success creates is actually to then tank the economy and basically start again on a new cycle of production. And so, again, it's workers who always bear the biggest brunt of these ups and downs and the unpredictability of it, not the capitalists. But that is the nature of capitalism, that its own processes of production lead it into a situation of crisis. And then it can only resolve that crisis by essentially reducing its own dynamism for a period in order to sort of clear the decks, if you will, and kickstart what's happening there. So these are things that are absolutely features, not bugs, of capitalism that happen consistently over time. And I think, you know, there's other kind of complicated things that I don't want to fully get into because you kind of have to know all of the different terminology to understand what I'm saying. But, you know, are they are these these crises becoming more frequent? It does seem so. And why is that the case? Well, it seems that the long-term dynamism of capitalism is reduced over time because for a lot of different reasons, the rate of profit, so like the proportion of profit that you're getting off your investment. So like, is $1 of investment going to make you $3? Or is it going to make you $1.75? That ultimately, that $3 goes down to $1.75 inexorably. And as the capital, as capitalism becomes less profitable, from a proportional sense, over time, less money is then going to be invested into production. You know, a lot of it gets invested into this Wall Street casino gambling, but ultimately, less money is invested into production production, which makes the system more fragile over time, which means that these sort of boom and bust cycles are more likely to happen more frequently. So, you know, certainly it's a feature, not a bug. And it's something that the long term history of capitalism seems to be showing happens more frequently as the economy becomes more and more developed in a capitalist sense. But that means the contradictions within the economy also become more and more developed, which makes it harder to maintain the dynamic periods over time.
0: Yeah, but it's very well explained. I mean, what a freaking system we have. And, you know, there's it's causing just complete devastation around the world right now, particularly because, exact, exa- like we've talked about, exacerbating all of this is the sanctions on Russia, one of the world's largest gas and um, wheat producers. And so I'm just going to throw out a few just to give people an idea here. I mean, The New York Times says it costs $125 right now to fill an average sized car in the UK. Um, the spike in energy prices is a one reason why the World Bank has revived revised its economic forecast last month, estimating that global growth will slow even more uh, than expected to 2.9%. And this is, of course, on top of what we already saw during the pandemic. And the International Energy Agency warned last month that higher energy prices have meant an additional 90 million people in Asia and Africa do not have access to electricity. I mean, this is one of the reasons... We saw uh, the you know, Sri Lankans uh, protesting angrily and storming uh, the pr- president's residence, uh, largely because of the lack of available fuel and, of course, food. The, Phil- the Philippines, it's, uh, this is like from The New York Times as well, the Philippines buys only a minuscule amount of oil from Russia. But the reality is that it doesn't really matter whom you buy your oil from. The price is set at the global market. Everyone is bidding against everyone else and no country is insulated, including the U.S. I could go on and on. I mean, in Laos, gas is now more than $7 a gallon. New Zealand, it's more than $8. In Denmark, it's more than $9. Hong Kong, it's more than $10. I mean, these prices are only getting higher as well. So, and there's, of course, the issue of food. You know, Ukraine and Russia have both accused each other of preventing grain exports, and the U.N. is warning of a catastrophic grain shortage worldwide. Uh, and, you know, Ukraine and you would know this, Eugene, Ukraine and its Western supporters claim that by blocking Ukraine's black Sea seaports, Russia's ad- aggravating this global food crisis. But Russia has rejected this narrative and has offered a uh, grain to go through Belarus to Lithuania. But Lithuania has rejected this because it's like slavishly applying sanctions. All that's to say, I think we would know this, you know, if we could hear the perspective in the media, Um, But it's been totally censored, if we could hear that Russian perspective. But my question for you is, how is all of this impacting global food prices? And what do you think is going to be the consequence for availability of food in the future, particularly in the global South?
1: I think it's a very dangerous situation. I mean, you know, you've got really, and and I think this is where you see the impact of sanctions in an even bigger way. I mean, certainly, there are a number of issues that are out there. I mean, obviously things like fertilizers and others are infected by, you know, oil and gas and potential possibilities of less of that. But we really have essentially when it comes to food, when it comes to fertilizer, when it comes to wheat, when it comes to all these other things, not necessarily a shortage of those, those, those goods, but because of the nature of sanctions, we have an imposed shortage on those goods. So I think the way that this is impacting is, you know, being heavily Distorted. I mean, when you look at the issue, for instance, of the grain coming out of Ukraine. Now, the issue, certainly Russia does have a a naval presence there in the Black uh, Black Sea, and they have, of course, been trying to limit traffic into Ukrainian ports, but Ukraine has also put a huge amount of mines on the coast to keep the Russian ships from getting too close, essentially. And Ukraine is refusing to remove the mines because they're like, well, if we remove the mines, Russia is just going to come in and, you know, bombard our ports or whatever. Now, Russia is saying that they're not going to do that, that they're willing to go that they want to come up with some sort of, uh, you know, area by which the, the grain can come out of Ukraine. Turkey is trying to mediate between them, but Ukraine is not actually adding any clarity as to what they say they would need, they say they need security guarantees. I don't know exactly what those are, but it is notable when you look at the withdrawal of the Russians from Snake Island, which, you know, was not presented in this light. It came, I believe, on the exact same day, if not the day after the president of Indonesia went to Moscow after having been in Kiev to address this exact issue, the issue of how to make sure the flow of grain could come out of Ukraine um, and other issues related to food sovereignty. And it seems certainly because Snake Island, when you look at where it is, really this random island in the middle of nowhere that is, there's nothing on it. But it is strategically important because it does help control the flow of commerce. It puts you in a good position to control the flow of commerce in and out of the Black Sea. So the way I looked at that, quite frankly, was that Russia was trying to send a message in relationship to whatever conversations happened uh, uh, when the president of Indonesia was there in Moscow to show a sign of good faith that they're willing to open up a, a an area. But Ukraine has shown nothing. Ukraine wants to ship the grain through other parts of Europe. But there's, you know, railroads have these things called gauges, right? So you can't have the exact same railroad between different countries necessarily. And the Ukrainian gauge and the EU gauge is not the same. So that means that it takes a lot longer to then get the grain out. And Ukraine also does not want to ship the grain out through Russia or through Mariupol, which is controlled by Russia, of course, through the Azov Sea, which Russia at least says that they have cleared of mines. And so essentially you have just this political standoff where for a variety of reasons, and I think really because Ukraine wants to weaponize this issue against Russia because it's a powerful issue, they are unwilling to meet anything. Now, I don't know what's going on, you know of course other people will say Russia is being intransigent but when you just look at the facts on the ground it seems that Russia has taken more steps than Ukraine to try to open things up especially because the grain that's coming out of the regions of Ukraine controlled by Russia Ukraine is saying that's stolen grain and so along with their western allies they're pressuring countries not to take food that they need because it's allegedly stolen now you know whatever there's I'm sure some legal principle there behind that. But if the issue is global famine, that seems like perhaps the least important issue uh, vis-a-vis how the grain is getting out. And then fertilizers, which are heavily produced by Russia, you know, the same issue that I raised earlier with the oil and gases sanctions, right? Is that, And this is something that the African Union, by the way, has consistently been pointing out about this issue. Now, they have, have, of course, said, yes, we want Russia to cooperate, but they have said many, many different times, and Africa is really the centerpiece of where people are saying that everyone is going to starve. Many, many times, African countries, the AU, on multiple levels have said, these sanctions are making it difficult for us to do business with Russian companies that are selling not only food supplies, but also fertilizer, and that we have to make sure that the sanctions don't get in the way. And this is also an issue that has come into play with other countries um, that have also been, you know, almost all of the conversations you see now between Putin and any world leader outside of the West, of course, are around this issue of fertilizers. And this very issue comes up of like how they're going to try to find a way to get around sanctions in order to make sure that they can export things. So Russia actually has plenty of their wheat ready to go, plenty of fertilizer ready to go. Russia's a big export of all types of food products ready to go. There is, you know, not as much grain, of course, as is normally produced in Ukraine, but, you know, farmers in Ukraine in both the East and the Western part of the country still producing. So, you know, sunflower seed oil, which is another big, uh, you know product that comes out of this region it's it's mainly there but because of the nature and the uh, of the sanctions that are existing on russia in particular and because of the the sort of geopolitics of the war and i think ukraine wanting to use this as a chip against russia it's creating the space where not as many of the food supplies and the fertilizer which will become credi- critically important in the growing season in the second half of this year which then speaks to 2023 right because okay a lot of the growing season is happening now I'm saying that there's not a lot of there's there's a lot of things that are being produced that can't get out because of sanctions. But if fertilizer is one of those things, it can have an even bigger impact on production for food in 2023, which means the sort of real impact of the food crisis could actually be kind of a delayed ticking time bomb here. And all of that is really coming together to create a massive issue. But certainly if the United States, which claims, by the way, the U.S. and the EU will claim when pressed, oh, well, the sanctions aren't around. You know, food or critical needs or things like that. That's totally fake. The reality is you create these huge sanctions regimes. doesn't matter what you build into it. People don't want to do business because they don't want to take a chance that it's going to somehow get them embroiled in some major legal case with the U.S. government or with the European Commission. And so ultimately, unless they're going to lift the sanctions on the various Russian companies that are working here, unless the EU and the U.S., who is 100 percent supporting Ukraine, are going to put pressure on them to remove some of these mines. Ukraine, by the way, is now saying they've put so many minds out there, they don't even know if they can remove them, um, you know, then this this issue is not going to be able to be resolved. And there's going to be these what are essentially artificial shortages being created that are going to have huge impacts on people all around the world.
0: Right. And, you know, I think it's also like we've I've talked about on this show a lot um, and we talked about on the freedom side as well, how Russia has been able to withstand the sanctions and the rubles higher than it's ever been, largely because Russia is this like commodities powerhouse. And of course, the sanctions haven't really hit Russia yet, um, at least like as as we've seen. But I also think that the West did underestimate the size of the Russian economy and the importance of it. Internationally. But that said, while Russia hasn't really experienced much consequences domestically, the current ruling administration is, I think, experiencing the consequences on top of, of course, the American people. Um, Right now, I'm just gonna, I just wanna talk about a couple polls that have recently come out. Only 28% of Americans support Biden's handling of the economy. Um, And that's from a poll actually from last week. Uh, Only 50% of Democrats do. But we actually learned specifically speaking about Democrats. This is actually for Biden, this is very troubling. 64% of Democratic voters say they would prefer a new Democratic candidate in the 2024 presidential election. This is from a New York Times poll that just came out in a couple in recent days. <clears throat> Excuse me. With only 26% of Democratic voters saying that the party should renominate Biden. And even worse, among young people, of Democrats under the age of 30 said they would prefer a different presidential nominee. I'm sorry, I'm having a coughing attack suddenly. (laughs) But Eugene, why do you think so few support Biden's handling of the economy? And what do you think it means for Democrats politically? And also to add to that, why are Republicans not the solution? Because That's important to
1: know. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I I think it's relatively obvious because he's not doing anything. I mean, when you look at you know, what is actually taking place, it's 100% clear that Biden is actually not doing everything he can to address the issue of inflation. I mean, you look at the issue of gas prices. And of course, you know, with the most recent, you know, report from the consumer price index, you've got the price of gasoline, the year on year increase, I believe is the highest since 1980. These are huge, huge increases that are happening. But we just raised this issue of sanctions. I mean, if Biden was 100% concerned with reducing prices at the pump, Without a doubt, Biden would be removing sanctions on Venezuela and Iran to do whatever he could to sort of free up the the sort of international supply or whatever of oil, especially Venezuela, since the Venezuelan oil industry is historically 100 percent based on trade between Venezuela and the United States. That's changed because of sanctions. But, you know, even the directors of Sitco, who are appointed by the fake president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido, after the U.S facilitated the stealing of the Venezuelan asset of Citco by this fake president, Juan Guaido. Even they're saying they're 100 percent prepared to start uh, buying more oil from uh, Venezuela in order to you know, help the gas market. you got Chevron trying to get back in there. Uh, so ultimately, you've got U.S. oil and gas companies really w- willing to go into Venezuela, start production, increase production fix a lot of the fields that have had a lot of problems because of sanctions as well, so that, that more can come out. And that obviously would absolutely have an impact, absolutely have a significant impact on the price of oil overall and also on the price of gasoline um, as it sort of filters down. And there's, again, there's sort of a complicated factor in the relationship between the two, but the nature is, is that if you clearly increase the supply of oil that's on the market, obviously it's going to bring down the price of gas. So he's not doing that. He's not doing that vis-a-vis Iran. He's also not putting in place any sort or even trying. And, you know, you can connect Biden to some degree with Democrats in Congress because some things do need congressional action. The sanctions piece, he could do a lot of that on his own, but he's putting ahead of the actual well-being of working class people in America. He's putting ahead of that this anti-communist political ideology because he doesn't want to potentially be accused of being pro-communist by people who live in Florida and the Republican Party. So he'd rather you pay huge amounts of money at the gas pump rather than, you know, have to have some sort of, you know, pushback against this absurd, you know, right wing ideological offensive. But he's also not putting price caps on key on on key goods, which he could do. And this goes back to the point I was making before. Why is it that if supply goes down, prices go up? There's actually nothing natural about that whatsoever. If there is a limited supply and demand outstrips it, it does mean there has to be a form of rationing. But that rationing can be done in any sort of way and you could just put a price cap on something and say listen you can't increase the prices above this which one means that if there's profiteering over and above the supply chain issue um then that's just going to be curbed because you just can't raise the prices and it means that if there is an issue of of supply being outstripped by demand that there's just going to have to be some rearrangement of the how the things are given out that don't include include price increases which means that the pain has to be spread amongst all people but it doesn't work that way under capitalism i've said it many times so far in this interview and i'll say it again in capitalism your paycheck is your ration card so the reason prices go up when there's not enough supply for what people really need is because that's how they ration out the limited supply rather than say okay everyone gets x amount of of whatever they just say the price goes up and who and whatever whoever can afford it That's who gets it. And if you can't afford it, you don't get it. And that's how we're gonna address the fact that there is a a disproportion between supply and demand. But Biden clearly could pursue some form of price cap on on anything, but certainly on key goods, on gasoline, on food, and the cost of food is dramatically increasing across the board. I think uh, year on year, food at home up ten percent. So these are big increases that are happening here. And you look at the power of these these companies, you know, fifty five to eighty five percent of the market in major meat, you know, I'm talking poultry, beef, pork is controlled by four companies or less, quite frankly. So they have tremendous ability to uh, adjust prices upward to make a lot of money, right? And so ultimately, there's things that the Biden administration could do to just address that by putting a straight up cap on it. There are other things they could do. But the fact of the matter is, is they're unwilling to do all the things they can do, because it comes up against the various other contradictions of capitalism and imperialism. Vis-a-vis the issue of sanctions, it means they would have to give up these absurd sanctioned regimes that are designed to punish companies for not, or countries rather, for not wanting to live by the rules the rules that the United States has unilaterally decreed they must live by. When it comes to issues like price caps, that means that capitalists don't get to unlimitedly profiteer in crisis situations and they don't get to just make up prices so that they can continue to fly their private jets and put heated pools in their giant you know, Swiss ski chalets. Um, Then why would they do that? Because that's who funds the campaigns. So ultimately, it's either coming up against the prerogatives of imperialism to control the world or the prerogatives of capital to be able to take the majority of the proceeds at whatever level they want from the production that the rest of us do every day, day in and day out when we wake up and we go to work. And so ultimately, I think people can see that. They can see that Biden isn't doing what he needs to do or isn't doing enough or isn't even really trying. I mean, he's putting out a tweet saying, you need to lower your gas prices. Well, I think most people look at that and say, well, that's ridiculous. There's no way you can be the most powerful person on earth, which people say the president is, and you can't do more than that. And so that's why the the rates are low. But I think it shows that It speaks to the same point about why Republicans aren't the answer, because Republicans are even worse. You know, Republicans want to increase the sanctions on all these countries. Now, you know, if you want to be a real cynic, they might say, well, we want to increase the sanctions so we can overthrow the country, and then we'll be able to open up the spigot because instead of Venezuela housing and feeding people, they'll just be getting rich, and the rich people will be buying skyscrapers in Miami, and then we'll bring your prices down once we can mount this, this manufactured coup via sanctions. But I mean, they want to increase the problem. By increasing sanctions on other countries that, uh, you know, that will will raise the prices and cause spikes in prices, and they absolutely don't want to see any sort of of attempt put on capital. I mean, you know, I raised that issue of profits earlier. The easiest way to address inflation driven by profits is to raise taxes, because if you know for sure more of your profits are going to be taken from taxes, you're not just going to randomly create things. Again, I said, you know, fifty-four cents out of every dollar. Uh, of inflation is going to profits. So if I know that 20% of that is going to be wiped away by taxes, well, there's no way I'm going to keep raising prices at the same level because I'm not going to benefit from it as a company at all. But we know Republicans, not only do they not want to raise taxes at all, they want to lower taxes on people. And certainly Republicans don't want to see any sort of government control over any sort of aspect of the economy. So anything like a price cap or anything like that, that would actually help people, they're going to be against that too. And they're also against almost every single form of relief. I mean, Think about it like this. I made that point earlier about how what Larry Summers and the Republicans were saying about the, 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 the demand being set higher than what the economy can produce being totally fake. Even though that's totally fake, if you look at the Republican Party leaders and what they're saying right now about inflation, they're blaming all of it on COVID relief. And they're saying this proves that we were right. It proves we were right the whole time. This is what happens when you do something good for people. You get inflation. And so they're using that to say that the budget that Biden has put forward, and there are a lot of problems with that budget, but that the budget's too big and you got to cut the budget and you got to have less for social programs. You don't want to do anything for working class people. So Republicans are actually even worse than Biden because their prescriptions are not only not going to address inflation, but could potentially make it worse. And even if they don't make it worse, the way they won't make it worse is by going out of their way to limit to the maximum degree the actual assistance that working class people get. Because Republicans are very quiet about the Federal mm-hmm. Reserve. It's interesting to note that they're not saying anything about the interest rate hikes because they're for it. And because they do know that this is going to be good for capitalists if the economy is tanked. And they're going to double down by saying we're going to cut your taxes and we're going to reduce social programs. So Republicans, even to the extent the inflation goes down, they want to increase the impact on working class people. So Biden is doing that already but they're going to double down on it. So they have no answer and no solution. Neither of the major parties is presenting any sort of solution to inflation and the broader issues that exist in the economy. And they're both you know, pursuing very mistaken views of how to address the economy. And the economy has many problems in and of itself. That's why it's so fragile and so weak and can be so easily derailed. And I think we're seeing more than anything else with this inflationary crisis, how capitalism is at a total cul-de-sac and a total dead end, and that capitalism has no way to deliver to people in the United States and around the world a decent standard of living that doesn't ultimately create some other major problem that then is going to mean the standard of living goes down.
0: Well said. And, you know, I want to mention the issue of Europe and get your take on that, because we see that the euro has, for the first time, reached parity with the U.S. dollar. Oh, not the first time, I'm sorry. That's the first time since 2002. But it's been a while. Uh, The euro has always been a little bit... uh, worth a little bit more than the dollar. So my friends who get paid in euros are pretty upset about that. Um, And then, of course, you have the head of the German Federation of Trade Unions warning that entire industries in Germany are at risk of collapse because of energy shortages from Russia, um, which is quite alarming. And so I guess, you know, what are these sanctions doing to the European economy? Because I think it's actually far worse for Europe than the US because Europe is so uh, entangled in the Russian economy.
1: Well, you know, Europe essentially seems to have just cut their own throat by participating in this, this this sanctions regime. It's it's honestly hard to understand and hard to fathom. I mean, you look at what's happening in Germany right now and i mean uh, you know i think it's very pressing that you brought up the what the german the head of the trade union federation that the whole industries could collapse and since germany is really the the manufacturing industrial engine of europe that means essentially the manufacturing industrial capability of the whole western european eu infrastructure could basically collapse you also can already see that in germany they're already rationing uh energy supplies and they're telling people that you know you have to, you know, use less energy. They're having companies compete over how much energy they use. And there's an interesting thing, and we saw it recently in Norway. The unions that are in the gas industry there in Norway were able to win a contract because they were threatening to escalate their strike in a way that would have heavily limited supply of Norwegian gas to the UK, which is often re-exported into the EU. And the whole thing was not that it was going to cause a problem immediately at that moment in Europe, but because what Europe is doing right now is rushing to fill as many like reserve tanks as they have of gas because they're anticipating that there's going to be a huge shortage in this winter and that it's going to hurt industry. It's going to hurt homes. It's going to hurt everybody. And they're trying to save as much as they can, but they don't even have enough capacity to save as much to really stave off the impact of this. And so I think what we're going to see without a doubt, in Europe. And what we're already seeing is heavily increased privation. Not only are costs going up, which means that people can't afford things, which means that they're having to go without them. So the standard of living is dropping for working class people all across Western Europe and all across the Eurozone. But that, in fact, it's going to get even worse because as companies have to reduce their production, that means unemployment is going to go up. That means that people are going to be even less able to provide for themselves and for their families, which means the level of privation is only going to continue more and more and more. You're going to see all sorts. of of different elements here, but the basic thing that has to be recognized is, you know, electricity is the underpinning factor of capitalism, of modernity, of modern society. You have to have power to run everything that's
0: yes I I am well aware of this
1: (laughs) So, to the extent that the ability to generate power is reduced that means that businesses have to close that people aren't able to run their heating their air conditioners their laptops charge their phones you know charge their electric cars I mean all of the various things that we think of on an everyday basis that are like our daily lives it's all based on power so as that's reduced that is, is is going to become a bigger issue which means that social struggle is going to continue and become an even bigger issue and it means that there's all sorts of different dis, you know things that are going to start to happen like for instance if you want to phase out oil and gas based fertilizers and move to other form of fertilizers. Since that market is not necessarily as developed and things can't switch right away, it means that you can see challenges for farmers and being able to plant their crops and having the things that they need. Uh, you wanna switch to, to to renewable energy, which we need to do absolutely as quickly as we possibly can. But if you just randomly switch, then that means that you could have less power or you have to then go to a dirtier power like coal in order to keep things going. But there could be a shortage of coal because of sanctions on Russia as well, or at least not a shortage, but an increase in the price of coal because of the sanctions on Russia as well. So you're in a situation where the energy mix in Europe is basically distinctly a threat, which means that people's lives are probably going to crater in the con- to the extent that they haven't already. And you're seeing all across Europe, even though it's not being really reported in the mainstream press, huge demonstrations in many different countries. Sadly, it's the far right wing that, again, has no answer for this for the people of Europe and, in fact, is backing the war against Russia and the sanctions. But nevertheless, they're taking advantage of it um, because they can in order to you know, drive discontent. But you can see people are rightfully very angry that their lives are getting worse in order for the NATO forces to fight to the last Ukrainian. So I think this has a potential of setting Europe back significantly in terms of its economic power and growth and driving very, very serious privation amongst the European people. Very dangerous situation and, and a tragic one, really, because it doesn't have to be this way.
0: And, you know, Eugene, I I actually just have one more question for you here. And I think you kind of segued into it quite well just now. You can really see how the sort of like socialism or barbarism dynamic is playing out right now, right? Like liberalism seems completely unresponsive to the many crises we're facing at the moment from stripping away, you know, our basic rights to like, you know, our basic reproductive rights in the US, voting rights to not taking anything about climate change seriously whatsoever to school shootings to this economic downturn we've just spent the last hour talking about all democrats are capable of is asking for donations and like telling us to vote harder and then republicans as you laid out quite clearly and just the right wing across the west and in general uh is like oh we just need more private you know privatization you know it's more tax cuts people are really desperate for something to change and as we know it's moments like this when fascism can prosper, but also it's moments like this when socialism can prosper. So as a longtime political organizer yourself, um, as well as a journalist, how do you see things playing out? And I'm not, you know, I know no one can predict anything really, but how do you see things playing out? And more, more importantly, you know, What do you think people should be doing and focusing on in a moment like this? Because like you said, the far right across Europe, across the US, across the world really is taking advantage of this moment. So I hope the left takes advantage of it as well. So what, what are your thoughts on all that?
1: Yeah, well, I think the future, the, I think we can predict that what you said is true, that there's going to be an increase in chaos. And and I think that in totally unpredictable consequences for things that we, we don't even know. I mean, you know, you look at the climate crisis, you obviously look what's happening with wars expanding all around the, the globe as the, the sort of rapaciousness of imperialism continues to grow as their hegemony starts to to slip it's sort of like backing an animal into a corner it's actually becoming more dangerous now as its model is becoming more and more clearly and obviously obsolete uh you know all of these things put together i think portend that there's going to be greater chaos and greater turmoil in the world so i think people have to focus on what the alternative is and what the sort of base level values have to be in order to turn things around because you know it really can't just be a policy discussion because as we've seen and as we've talked about this entire interview, the sort of policy tools uh, of capital are not, in fact, in any way, shape or form going to solve any of the problems. They cannot meet the scale of the challenges. I mean, you look at the climate is the biggest example of that, but it's even, you know, beyond that, just the fact that the U.S. can't even pass enough infrastructure dollars to fix all the bridges that could collapse at any time in and of itself gives you a sense of the decrepitness of this system. And so we have to really think what are the base level things that we need to, to prosper as humanity and what kind of system can go against that and we re- or, and, and can, cut ag- can actually establish that and can cut against the grain, I should say, of what exists right now, right? And I think that basically comes down down to the, the the values of capitalism versus the values of socialism in my view and really clarifying that for people because you know in capitalism there's one value and it's the Almighty dollar as they say you know it's it's profit everything that is produced is produced to make money and only incidentally does it do it they't don't, you don't make clothes because people want to wear clothes you don't make food because people need to eat you don't want make housing because people need a roof over their head you don't have health care because people need to be healthy you have all those things because they can generate money. And you got other things that who knows why we need them, but we're still buying them. Uh, And and so that's the nature of capitalism is everything is produced only for a dollar. And to the extent it doesn't make money is not going to be produced. That's why you have a crisis of affordable housing because at the end of the day, it's not that profitable to make housing for poor people. So there's never going to be enough of it because there's not really any sort of incentive in the quote unquote economy to make it happen. But socialism is a very different sort of proposition, which is saying that people do have a basic right to a livable planet, to education, to a roof over their head, to health care, to eating. Like basically socialism is saying that that the goal, the key goal of society is to make sure that every single person lives the best longest life they can and that everything should be subordinated to making sure that every single person lives the best longest life they can. And so if that's a fundamental value that people agree with, and I think most people could get down with that, Mm -hmm. that like, yes, the number one goal of all structures created to govern this society and everything in it is to make sure that I live long and that I live well and that everyone who is related to me, who I know who lives around me also lives long and lives well, then you basically are for socialism. And what is the difference between what can be and what is? It's only the power of capitalists, a tiny group of people over the government, the so-called state that they use to repress you. Why do, you, why do people follow the law at the end of the day? Because they know they can go to jail or be killed by the cops. And so the repressive value of the government is the key factor. The government, we know, is controlled by big money and controlled by big business. And because they have this repressive instrument in their hand that they can use and manipulate to prevent the things that we know could solve the problems we need from ha- that are happening, that, that could solve the problems that are happening, uh, then that's that's the only difference. So if we change that, that we can have, the, we can have nice things, basically, for lack <laughs> of a better term. And so I think that's the moment we have to really take advantage of here now, is people are desperate. People are looking for change. They are looking for solutions. And that's why fascist movements are popular, because they offer you very easy solutions. They offer you Occam's razor kind of solutions to the problem that you're having. There's, okay, 2030, I mean, you look at the example of America. And you look at what's happening with the so-called manga movement and these other far-right fascists. You know, they're saying to people, well, listen, when were things good for your grandparents, maybe, 1950s, things like that? Things were good then, right? You know, people had houses, they had this, they had that. You had jobs, you had this, you had that. You know, the country's been hollowed out. They're bringing in all these new people. And that's what they say. Well, back then, there weren't any immigrants here. You know, back then, they didn't have all, you know, people running around with rainbow flags. You know, back then, women knew their place. They stayed in the home. Back then, Black people, you knew what was going on with Black people. They weren't asking for too much. Uh, And so then you look at that and say, so what's the difference now? you got Black people demanding all this. you got gay people demanding rights. You have women trying to get out here and work in the workforce. You have people coming from Central America. So what's Occam's razor? What's the biggest difference, right? So that must be the problem. It is a highly simplistic solution, but it makes sense because it's based on the relative sense of of what was happening at a very different time in the United States and where, by the way, things weren't that good for most people. Mm -hmm. And the illusion of the so-called middle-income economy You know i don't want to get into that but you know it wasn't what they said it was but even to the extent it was you know obviously it was for other reasons but you have that kind of occam's razor and fascism offers you those very easy scapegoats that are based on you know sort of basic things that seem to be you know seem to be true that feel somewhat true by this sort of surface level thing and it says we're going to resolve that right now we're going to find a way we're going to get these immigrants out of here um you know or we want to go back in time we're going to go after those jews You know, it's the same thing, same logic. And we're going to find these people who are causing these problems and we're going to get rid of them for you. And so since people need immediate relief and are desperate for immediate relief, they grasp onto these small solutions. So we have to do a lot of the explaining to show people immigrants are not the problem in the United States. Immigrants to the United States didn't cause any problem you have right now, and they aren't causing any other ones. Because quite frankly, you could have double the number of immigrants and there's still not enough. Uh, listen, if you go, you can look at this. People should look it up in the Bureau of Labor Statistics. You can look up how many job openings there are in every job category. There are tons of job openings. So there is no situation where immigrants coming to the United States have restricted the number of jobs that are at that are actually out there and available. Every single area of the economy has a need for jobs, including manufacturing, by the way, mm-hmm. um, including the building trades, by the way, and all these other areas that are allegedly being restricted and taken away by immigrants. You know, that's not the fault of China, that factories went to Asia. It was the fault of the monopoly capitalists in the United States who said, well, American workers, they want too much. They want to have a decent life. And we don't want our workers to have a decent life because that costs us too much money. And then we won't have the life we want. I mean, can you imagine how bad it would be if my Olympic sized pool didn't have an indoor outdoor portion that was partially heated so in the winter I could go swimming and also have my helipad so I can move back and forth and don't have to worry about (laughs) traffic. How terrible would that be for me? So I got to get rid of these workers who want to just have like one car and a house with three bedrooms in it and a yard. So ultimately it's not the fault of China. And so we have to go deeper and show people that the, the, the scapegoats are just that they're scapegoats. They're not real. It's the capitalist class of people that's manipulating everyone else to make sure that they take home the most money at the end of the day. And they take home more and more every single year. And that once we eliminate that need for everything to be produced for profit and say, why don't we do this instead and look at what exists, what's necessary for people to live and just survive, and then what do people want right like what are the things that with the available productive capacity we can definitely do so that every so that production is based on what is what do we have making sure everyone gets exactly what they need and making sure we do the maximum amount to get people what they want and then also structure society to make sure we can expand the wants over and above the needs so people's lives continue to get better but that requires planned production not the anarchy of capitalism, which is just everything is concerned by profit and money moves around based on where the most profit is being made. It means saying, what do we have? What do we need? What do we want? How do we get from point A to point B in developing and making sure everyone has what they need and we can continue to give people what they want and grow the things that they want so people's lives can continue to improve? It's pretty basic and it's pretty straightforward. But if we don't have those kind of explanations for people to help them see you know, beneath and beyond the propaganda, it's not going to happen. And things can get much, much worse, as bad as they are now. And I think we're headed in a very negative direction in the world. Climate change, nuclear war, growth of poverty, growth of hunger, all these different things that are happening. These are the trends. And so the only question is, is will those trends be arrested by a movement of people that are going to say, no, we have to turn things around and live based on what people need and, and people's well-being, as opposed to the private profit making of the, you know, Davos elite.
0: Ooh, I couldn't have said it better. That got me fired up. And I think it's also a good point to tell everyone who is still watching and listening, that's why you should support Breakthrough News at oh. patreon.com slash breakthrough news so that we can help inform people about what the actual structural problems are here rather than the scapegoating that you're talking about. But on that note, Eugene, I want to thank you for joining me once again on Dispatches to break all this down for us, Eugene per year journalist at Breakthrough News, host of the daily podcast, The Punch Out, which is such a necessary thing to listen to. It's like 15 minutes of the news you need to hear every day from the right perspective or the left perspective. I should be careful how I say that. (laughs) Anyways, Eugene, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Rania.